0: Hey listeners, before we jump into the episode, just a quick word. The conversation we're about to share is about school safety, and it was recorded about two weeks ago. The day after Val and I finished recording our commentary, my former high school, East High in Denver, suffered the trauma of a school shooting. It's a tragic and all too familiar story. The surface details change, but the deeper story is the same. A school, a community, a space that we could envision as a sanctuary of safety had that vision shattered a community I was and still feel deeply connected to, was traumatized. In the wake of these types of tragedies, we're used to hearing folks say, I never thought it would happen here. Not my school, not my neighborhood, not my community, not my kid. But if we're being honest with ourselves, I think it's really hard to justify that shock. When we look at the prevalence of these events, in many ways, it's a question of when, not if. In fact, as I was repairing this little addendum to this episode... The Covenant School in Nashville was yet another victim. Whenever you listen to this episode, if you're in the United States, you are likely not far in time or in space from another shattered community, senselessly lost lives, and more lifelong trauma. And the only way that changes is if we decide, as a country, to change it. The why of that seems obvious. The how is much more complex. So we offer this conversation as a place to dig in, We don't come to meet tidy solutions or a checklist to follow, but hopefully it can push the conversation beyond just physical safety and move us beyond seemingly simple solutions to a broad view of safety informed by those most impacted. Okay, here's the episode. Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew White, dad from Denver.
1: And I'm Val, a black mom from North Carolina.
0: And this is School Safety, More Than One Dimension.
1: Mm. So I will say that when I hear the topic school safety, I'm immediately imagining gun violence, right? We know that it is unfortunately all too rampant that many young people and their caregivers have had to grapple with what it means to go to school and possibly be a victim of gun violence. It's awful. It's scary. I don't think any of us feel okay with it, but our title leads me to believe there's something more that we're talking about today.
0: Yes, yeah, I share that same school safety, I'm immediately thinking about physical safety. But our guest today encourages us to look beyond just physical safety into these kind of broader view of what it means to actually be safe in a school. From social to spiritual to safety from criminal justice system to these broader views of What makes for an environment that feels safe? Because no question, we have far too much gun violence in schools. And in terms of the harms that might happen to a student in school, gun violence is probably the least likely Mm. when you think about all the other ways that our kids could be harmed in school.
1: Yeah, I connect with that because although immediately when we talk about school safety, I might think of gun violence, it's easy to recognize the different ways in which our children can be harmed in school, right? Through curriculum, through other policies through peer-to-peer interactions or teacher-to-student interactions, right? There's lots of opportunity to be harmed in school.
0: Yeah, and I think that broader definition of what it means to be safe in a school is why I'm so excited to bring our guest today on, Dr. Meg Caven. She's a white educational researcher and has been thinking about school safety and writing about school safety. And actually, I think you came across an article she wrote about school safety, which is how this podcast came to be in the first place, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was reading the article and I was like... I, I want to hear more from this woman because immediately she expanded my mind about school safety and was very honest in naming race as part of things that we have to consider when we're defining safe spaces for young people
0: really excited to share her perspective. I think she brings a focus on the, the goal of education that is beyond just academic achievement, right? That's like a tool for democracy. That's a, a tool for creating whole people. And so, you know, I find that both so inspiring, but also not surprising that then she takes like a really strong equity focus in her work. And so looking at school safety and the ways that we go about trying to achieve that with a real eye towards what are the like equity impacts of the approaches we take.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think it's really important for us on this podcast to have the conversation because we would be lying to ourselves and the audience would be lying to themselves if they didn't associate possibly integrating a global majority school with issues of wondering about their child's safety. Yes, right. And so naming that, putting that out there about what we think we know about safety, what we understand about it, and kind of grappling with our ideas about it is really important.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's like... Uh... A reason that white and privileged folks will give all the time for not enrolling in their neighborhood school, for not enrolling in the global majority school down the block is concerns about safety. And I think, yeah, she she brings a great clarity to it. And I think it's on on us to also keep that at the forefront of our minds that when we talk about safety, there are safety issues in all schools. There are ways that Mm -hmm. all schools can be harmful to kids. And we tend to associate particularly those physical manifestations of lack of safety with black and brown schools. and, And I think the data doesn't really back that up.
1: That's right. I'm looking forward to this conversation.
0: All right, let's take a listen.
2: My name is Meg Cavan. I am a senior research associate at a company called the Education Development Center. We do applied research and technical assistance for uh, education and public health. But leading into that work, uh, I did a PhD in sociology focused on school discipline and racial inequity and what happens when we use policy to try to interrupt some of the um, negative consequences of school discipline and other socializing aspects of the education system.
0: Mm. And why do you care about that? I
2: know, that
1: sounds super interesting. Can you say more about that?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I have always been interested in education, but less so in education as like a manufacturer of academic outcomes and more in education as, as a social engine in our society, right? Like if you go back to the sort of founding principles of public schooling, that it's instrumental in creating our society, creating whole people, that we have to think about schools as more than academic institutions. Preach. Preach, right? (laughs) And so if we're thinking about schools as more than just academic institutions, and simultaneously are holding this, this belief that schools are, you know, quote unquote, the great equalizer among men. We have to ask the question, to what extent are, are schools achieving that aim of promoting social equity? And of course, you know, it's no surprise to you that we find that in fact schools are not completely achieving on that goal. And, and we have to ask the question why and examine the places where that is particularly the case and so for me school discipline is one place where we tie together these social systems that promote inequality where they would otherwise have the opportunity to do the opposite right so mm. so if mass incarceration is the new Jim Crow and we see school discipline as this like pipeline between schools and the criminal legal system Folks are beginning to recognize policy solutions to try to interrupt that pipeline. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious what it looks like for schools and school leaders and educators to sort of internalize those policies and turn them from like a state-level edict into a set of school-level practices. And what, what implication does that have for kids, right? And I... I'm trying to think of like, what's the personal story about me that connects me to that? Are you reading
1: my mind? I literally was like,
2: (laughs) what is your personal
1: connection? Like, what is it about you?
2: Like, why you? Why this? Yeah. I was thinking about this yesterday, right? Like, I have tremendous privilege in the education system. I went to an independent school. I grew up in Toronto and I had a really generally positive educational experience Right. So I'm I'm a queer identified person. I came to that queer identity in high school and I at the time assumed that that meant I knew a lot about oppression that I could like Mm. apply to other people's experiences. And like, I understand you because we have a shared experience of of otherness and oppression. And when I came from Canada to the U.S., I I crossed a national boundary where the histories and legacies of racism are different. Mm-hmm. Toronto is one of the most multicultural cities in the world, and it's also really good at patting itself on the back for being so and yeah. like mm. bringing a very colorblind ideology to like, we yeah. have got this, no need to self-examine here, because yeah. look around you, it's a salad are. bowl. It's fine. Right, look, yeah. how polite, look how polite we right. are. And so I sort of brought those pieces with me when I moved to the US, and then I got schooled. You know, I was really lucky Mm. to make friends with a group of people who were very willing to call me in on my misunderstandings of the way race and racism operate in the United States. And that became like a very deep personal commitment. Like, okay, I thought I got this as a Mm. white person. I thought I got this as a queer person. Turns out I don't. Mm. And so let me make that my work to... Find a place to work for justice in a way that's appropriate based on my positionality and And so that's sort of how I got into education and how I got to school discipline specifically. I, I don't know, maybe it was maybe it was more cerebral than any than any real experience, but once you start spending time in schools and seeing the ways seeing the variation in the ways that kids are treated as like, young humans who are in development Mm. of their Mm -hmm. individuality and you compare it to your own experience, you're like, this is like, I just had, I had so much freedom and, and to see that freedom juxtaposed against the control and the surveillance Mm. that are brought to bear on kids of color in particular was just, uh, like impossible to ignore.
0: Mm, so it's like this this contrast between the freedom you felt and then the ways that you saw kids, particularly kids of color, being treated in mm-hmm. our education system was kind of like a breaking point. But yeah, but yeah I, I kind of want to go back to that memory of your own sense of freedom.
1: Yeah. What did this freedom look like, feel like?
0: Because my guess is that is, that is tied to a sense of safety. Like right. to, to feel free, you have to feel safe.
2: Yeah. I mean – I went to this all-girls independent school where, like, the message about being yourself and finding yourself and expressing yourself, those messages were loud. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so even as a young queer person, as a young, like, gender nonconforming person, I sort of found my way. I felt enough safety to come out in limited ways within my school community eventually to my family. And ultimately, I, I'm not really sure I could point to a single one thing that made me feel entitled to that space because it was a struggle, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't all sunshine and roses, but it felt important to fight for. And it felt safe enough that the fight wouldn't endanger me in like bodily or economic mm. ways. And then you know it's it's like impossible not to acknowledge whiteness, right? Like not saying anything that anyone doesn't already know that there's just immeasurable privilege that my white body is granted in a social system to to sort of push boundaries in ways that other people don't have when you're a person of color.
0: Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So this this link between uh, freedom and safety feels really, really powerful to me and, mm-hmm. and and certainly pushes beyond this idea of just like physical safety, which is part, part of what you have studied in our current school context. Can you talk us through that, that link a little more and kind of this like broader definition of safety that you use?
2: Yeah, I think for me, my entry into school safety came through one particular door, which is like in the popular – Imagination. when we start to think about school safety, we're talking often about managing the risks around gun violence in schools, right? Yep. And people's answers mm-hmm. to how do we manage the risk around gun violence in schools invariably start to look a lot like an arms race, right? Like we have got to manage the risk of gun violence in schools with police, with metal detectors, mm-hmm. with threat assessment protocols, even, you know, arming teachers, right? And those, those solutions sound good because they kind of match the intensity of school shootings in their tenor, right? Like mm-hmm. th- there's no arguing with mm-hmm. the fact that mm-hmm. gun violence in schools is like tragic and harrowing and, and absolutely gut-wrenching. And extreme. And extreme. And so
0: it feels like it must right. call for extreme measures because it is such a, like an, ex- an extreme problem.
2: Exactly, exactly. And so that that conversation begins to take shape in the public domain. And immediately for me, I hear this sort of list of interventions that we should put into play to to increase the safety of our schools, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. well, let's get more cops, let's get more metal detectors, let's sort of amplify the surveillance and the control mechanisms around Violence prevention and all of those things have documented, evidence-based repercussions for kids of color that are negative. Right? Mm. You put more cops in schools; the arrest rates for kids of color goes up. You arrest kids of color; their health outcomes go down, their educational outcomes go down. You've linked them to the criminal legal system. You're immediately in an effort to increase school safety. You have also made schools less equitable, more racially unjust mm. for the majority of public school students in the country, right? Yep. And so for me, I'm interested in interrupting the conversation about school safety that, that is, is so one-dimensional around gun violence, right? That is a critically important aspect of protecting young people. But at the end of the day, school shootings remain very, very rare, And there are so many other features of schools that are associated with safety for the kids who are in them. And Mm -hmm. so, not only do we need to be really thoughtful about the ways that we promote safety and reduce the risk of violence in schools so that kids are not exposed to interventions with these unintended consequences that are racially inequitable, but I think we need to have a more expansive view of what it means to have a safe school. And that extends to protecting kids' emotional and mental health, to protecting kids from structural violence that comes down on them via school, district, and state policy.
0: There's the first piece of this, which is like the the systems that we put into place disproportionately endanger students of color. But I think there's another piece of this, which is, like, if you actually start thinking about the whole kid needing to feel safe, mm. that these systems that we put in place also damage that for all kids. Sure. And so, like, if you're if you're invested in creating a school community where everybody feels a sense of belonging, where everybody feels a sense of ownership over the community, that these measures that we take are working counter to that. Right. That metal detectors, right. That, that police and schools are working counter to this sense of community, and that leads to the things that are much more likely to actually impact your kid's safety, which is bullying. Which is you know fights in hallways, which is these other these other things that are my guess would be, and I don't know maybe maybe the data backs us up. But it's not my my suspicion is that those things are amplified when you create this kind of surveillance system, when you create this expectation of of violence, when you create these measures that are designed for safety that maybe you are actually amplifying. The things that are more likely to actually cause, yeah. you know, impacts on safety.
2: Yeah, and it, and in truth, Andrew, like I don't feel like the the sort of causal explanations there are really strong in any given direction, right? You know, the data typically show that like when police are in schools, more incidents are reported. Is that because there are more incidents because there Mm. are police? Is that because police are brought into schools where there are more incidents at baseline? Um, Regardless, I think that the kinds of things you're talking about, right, bullying, physical or other types of altercations, like, those are are culture issues in schools. Like, that's Mm. about relationship. It's about community. It's about culture. It is – it's not about – surveillance and
0: control Mm. and by culture i guess you mean just like the way that a school community interacts with itself that the the way we might talk about like school climate or something
2: yeah it's the same conversation i feel like we have on the community level when we talk about whether or not police are the right people to solve Mm -hmm. social problems around Mm. uh poverty homelessness community instability and other sorts of ways right mental health crises I talked to a lot of people who are like, you know, the SRO in my school, the school resource officer in my school was the only person I could talk to because he or she came from my neighborhood. He or she came from my community. They were the only Spanish speaking person, the only person of color in my community. And I like, I've got time for that all day. I think it's incredibly important to have those kinds of adults, those kinds of caring adults in the building. Do they have to be cops?
0: Right. Right.
2: There's no reason why why that person, who's the person that, that a child can connect to, is also a person who has the power to arrest that child, mm. who, like, carries a set of handcuffs around a school building.
0: But if our policies are only focused on removing SROs from schools without – Putting something else to fill that role. I mean, I think something that you wrote was more about you know uh, suspensions and expulsions. But the same sort of idea applies. Limiting exclusionary disciplines is imperative, but violence must not be left unchecked. Disorder erodes feelings of safety as well. And I feel like that's a really it's a hard line to walk because a school that is in chaos does not feel safe to any of the Mm -hmm. students, and a school that is relying on you know punitive discipline or cops to enforce all of its discipline also does not feel safe.
2: Right, and that sort of came out of some of my dissertation research, which had to do with you know what it looks like in schools when you put new restrictions in place on the ways that suspension and expulsion can be used, right? And you know, I spent six months in inside a couple of schools, essentially just following the disciplinarians around, saying like, okay, you, you no longer have these tools in your belt. What are you doing to try to create feelings of safety and stability in this in this school building? And what I found was like in in the setting of having suspension and expulsion taken off the table in terms of tools they could use, there was nothing else they had. And there was no Mm. money for restorative justice coordinators. There were no additional people. There was no additional training. Mm. They were really left to wing it. And, And more often than not, what they did was suspend the kids anyway and just not write it down. Right? Mm. Go home. We'll try again right. tomorrow. You best not come back here until you come back with a parent for a meeting. Like, that's still a suspension, mm. but the suspension didn't get written down. So it looks really great in the data, but actually, in terms of culture and climate, nothing's changing within those schools. And so, you know, after George Floyd was murdered and districts across the country started to pull police departments out of their school buildings and sort of say you're right like we've got a system wide issue with police brutality we're not going to replicate that inside our schools we are going to take seriously these years of community organizing and the student led and community led movements that have asked for police to be taken out of schools we're going to we're going to execute on that i couldn't help but watch that happen across the country and feel like yeah, okay, but what are you doing instead? Mm-hmm. And I don't mm. I I don't think police are the answer. Like I, I really believe those abolitionist movements, those community-led movements that are saying we want cops out of the schools. But I do think it's important to think about what are the real solutions to cultivating a safety that is felt by all students. And and I think we have a lot more work to do to identify those things. And so so in my piece I wrote about the the importance of sort of like rapid cycle evaluation. And here's where I'm exposing myself as a researcher, right? But like, (laughs) there is not going to be a one size fits all approach, right? I I think educators are busy people. They hope for and deserve out of the box solutions. And I'm one of the people who will say there aren't any because every school context is different and culture and contextual factors are important and, and they vary tremendously. We need more research, but we need research done by school communities inside school communities like my dream would be to drive a like nationwide network of youth participatory action research projects where like young people in schools are talking to each other about what are the things in here that make me feel safe and unsafe and how do we aggregate those up and create real student-led solutions that promote like a really holistic safety inside schools. Okay, so sometimes I speak for all black people. I speak for all the gays, so I'm with you.
1: Okay, okay, sweet, sweet, sweet. sweet.
0: That leaves the white people for me.
1: <laughs> where do you, th- oh, both of yeah. you all, all right? So, where do you all think white folks get their ideas about what it means to be safe? <sighs>
2: Val, that's, I mean, that's a question, right? I mean, immediately, I think like where I start with is like racial segregation, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like white flight folks retreat to their enclaves and like build up these homogenous neighborhoods that are impenetrable by any other. Mm -hmm. And, And that becomes a feeling of safety. Like I know everybody, everybody looks like me and everyone, anyone who isn't here is a threat. I think that's one piece of it. And this is where I I go back to sort of 80s, 90s, early 2000s policies and public creations of these fictions like urban teenage super predators who are these mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. wild youth of color who are always on the verge of violence and they become this sort of like public political fiction that white folks who have no idea sort of like attach to every black or african american youth they see is is mm-hmm. is just a, a a minute away from unprovoked violence so being at a distance from that feels feels synonymous with safety right mm-hmm. and then i think if that's what that is if if safety is ultimately separation mm-hmm. from folks of color right then I think white folks start to look for the the infrastructures and the technologies, right, that, that keep them separate. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think I think it does have to do with race. I think it also has to do with poverty. Like I don't mean to exclude socioeconomic difference. You know, if we acknowledge that the power to sort of create these these public imaginations lies in the hands of the affluent white folks who hold the cameras and the microphones that really separation from working class and poor folks, separation from folks of color, separation from immigrants, separation from, you know, Mm -hmm. gender nonconforming people, the LGBTQ community, like it all becomes about maintaining barriers against Mm. the other and whatever it takes to to hold those boundaries. Yeah. So given that, which
1: gave me chills. That was a a chill reaction in my body based on your words. Do you think white folks, that false sense of safety means they miss opportunities to talk to their kids about safety at school or what makes them feel safe or like what opportunities are missed because we think we've created this bubble in which we are always safe?
2: Yeah. I think in all honesty, most parents in public schools have to contend with and don't have the privilege of achieving that complete retreat, right? Like it's only a very small subset of people who are like, here I am safe in my enclave and, and nothing mm-hmm. shall cross the threshold that would, that would expose my young person to threat. I think there are more parents than we know who send their kids to school saying, is my kid safe from racial bias, is my kid safe from bullying based on their gender identity, expression or sexuality? Is my kid safe from bullying based on their socioeconomic status, the clothes they wear are the sneakers we can afford, right? Like I think there's a lot a lot of parents mm-hmm. who know that there are risks out there for their kids socially and emotionally. And it's actually a very limited subset who get to exist in the bubble of this this perceived, Safety, hmm. and so are those folks missing the opportunity to talk to their kids about about how safety is cultivated for them or how safety is threatened in in their schools? Sure, but I know I know that many more parents are actually on a day to day basis like having to contend with that in a very real way, mm-hmm. and I don't want to pretend otherwise.
0: Yeah. I think, I think there's also a difference between perceived safety and actual safety, right? So I, I think, like, it's terrifying to be a parent. Right. You have these little people. You want them to, to thrive. You want them to be safe. And so it's like, well, what you uh, I don't know what to look for. And then there's this like n- nice, neat narrative for white parents, which is you need to keep your kid around white kids. Right. Like that the answer to safety is to move to a quote unquote safe neighborhood with quote unquote good schools. And what does that mean? That means a white neighborhood with white schools. Right. So that that narrative, that smog, you know, to quote Beverly Daniel Tatum, that's like that's everywhere. Mm-hmm. We just like breathe that and recreate that all the time. And so it sort of sinks in as this like idea Like channel the understandable terror of being a parent into this thing that seems a little more controllable because here's this system that says, well, you know, if you just make enough money or if you just call the right admissions person or if you just, you know, make the system bend to your will in just the right way, then you can solve for this safety thing and you feel like you've done it. But, but I don't think that those spaces that we then create, those all-white spaces, I mean, school shootings are rare. And where do we see them most often? We see them <laughs> right? in incredibly homogenous, white, privileged spaces. Like, those spaces that we think we're creating for safety are not actually safe in the end.
2: 100%. Ani DeFranco had this line in a song, like, a million years ago that was like, every year now, like Christmas, some boy gets the milk-fed suburban blues reaches for the available arsenal and saunters off to make the news. And it's like...
0: Mm. That's really that's, good. Yeah.
2: And it's, uh, and it's true. It's true of, of violence in black churches. It's true of violence in synagogues, in LGBT clubs. And yeah.
1: Yeah. Every morning I drop my Otis off to school. He's a ninth grader. And every morning there's a line to go in through the metal detectors. And every morning, there's a sense of sadness, you know, of of watching the young Mm -hmm. people do this. And it's it's wild because I remember thinking recently, man, I'm like super excited that at their school, they don't have a hoodie and hat policy. Like they can just wear hoodies and hats. (laughs) Like that's yay, right? And yet (sighs) each morning, they have to walk through metal detectors. And it doesn't make me as a parent necessarily feel safer. I think I feel like the odds are lower that there will be a mass shooting at the school, maybe. Um, I don't actually know what to do about that. And I don't actually know the conversation to have about that either, because our children have grown up with so much violence in schools. I think in some respects, they might feel safer, right? We lived in Florida during the Stoneman Douglas shooting. And I am typically okay with talking to my kids about anything at all. But for whatever reason, like a week had passed and I just was not able. I was just so broken over the whole thing that I was not able to like have a conversation with them about it. And my youngest came home and she was like, today we had a Alice drill. Because there was a, a shooting at a school and they used, uh, you know, AR-15. And she knew, like, all of the details that had happened. And I just remember feeling so so broken about the ways in which our, our young people are having to experience school and... In so many different ways, because we're not even talking about curriculum violence, right? Like, I've had to have parent conferences saying, like, this book is extra racist. We're not going to read this as a class, right? So I'm also having to stand in in that way as well. And I don't know. It's just a rant. I knew you would hear me. So thank you for listening. No,
2: no, I'm, I'm with you, right? Like, it's hard to hold space for both, right? Like... School shootings are are these like devastating ruptures that absolutely eviscerate our belief that that schools can be a sanctuary for kids,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and they are so infrequent relative to the daily acts of violence that occur within schools that don't leave a bruise that we can see. Right, and I think I think. Curricular violence is one, right? I'm like really conscious about not wanting to center queerness in this space, but we're definitely in a moment where violence against trans youth Mm -hmm. is playing out in ways that like really tie the hands of educators who more often than not want to do right by their kids, but, but they are put a tremendous risk by these policies that are coming down in in states across the country, re- restricting the ways that educators can acknowledge and, and validate young people's gender identities and whole selves. And that, that access to that kind of validation and support is a tremendous protection for those kids. Mm-hmm for trans right. kids in particular against the risk of suicide and depression and other mental health. Like, it really matters. It really matters that right. schools be spaces that kids can safely be their complete selves. And that that is true of gender identity. It's also true of racial identity, right? And, right. and when you think about, like, you know, school dress codes are still dealing with bullshit about hair, mm-hmm. you right. know? And, like, how is mm-hmm. that still a thing where kids of color are spending time in the disciplinary system inside their schools because of because of their hair their
1: natural hair that grows out of their head their
2: natural hair right. Yeah. right and so if we know if we know that kids safety measured by their mental health and their ability to keep on living in a world that is not always kind is placed at risk by policies and relationships where their authenticity is invalidated how can we stand behind for a single second any action or restriction o- on that authenticity? And so I think going back to your original question of like, what did it mean for me to feel safe?
0: Mm-hmm. What
2: did it feel like for me to feel safe as a young person in my school? It was that, right? It, mm. I was a weird kid. You know, even, even before I sort of found language around my queer identity, I was, I was weird. And that weirdness was celebrated.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, that to me is such a compelling, you, you know, the the argument on the other side of creating spaces for representation, of creating, you know, a space where kids can see their own identity reflected, can feel like that's an acceptable thing. The argument on the other side is that is that white cis kids might feel a little bit uncomfortable. and And, you know, when you pair that against like the likelihood of my ability to thrive, to continue to live. On one hand, and this, like, slight discomfort. On the other hand, it's like, how – yeah, how can we still be having this argument? How can we be having this argument?
2: Yeah. Yeah. My my four-year-old son – he's not four anymore. He turned five this week – requested for his birthday – a zombie costume and an Elsa costume and and yesterday he wore his <laughs> Elsa earrings to school. He just clipped them on his ears and he wore his little Elsa <laughs> earrings to school. That's and amazing. like from from down the block his teacher was like, "Are you wearing earrings? You look fabulous." Like th- the the celebration of that and that I knew enough about his school and knew enough about the adults in his school to like not worry. Mm about mm. him for a minute in in that expression of himself felt, feels a lot like safety and yeah. and whiteness. Can I talk to you about a similar
1: experience that I had yeah. with my son at five? Um, like the teacher had said, he ran around a lot. And I remember, and thankfully he does not remember because I checked and we were in the car and I said, you know, you have to listen to what the teacher tells you to do because if you don't listen, you'll get labeled emotionally behavior disturbed and then you will be tracked forever and like i have a five-year-old in the back seat who is like what is happening right (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i felt just so much pain at my reaction to that because it wasn't him and i shouldn't have right ever put that on him he was a kid who was being five and running around the classroom and in his defense He's a multiple-time national champion track athlete. So
0: he, <laughs> so he <laughs> likes to, to run. run. He was practicing. <laughs> Oh, shit. He, so to, he, he was just likes to practicing.
1: run, right? <laughs> but, but to imagine a school community, like what you just described for your son, for all children, what, what a beautiful gift that would be for all children. And so, yeah, my heart breaks for parents who have to – have conversations like mine and my heart rejoices when we find schools communities
2: like your your son goes to so i'm sorry you had to do that yeah like it just it shouldn't be that way Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that conversation i mean like i i know from the black parents in our school community that like they're having those conversations with their kids maybe not so much about the school but like definitely about the world beyond the school yeah
0: right yeah, you, you wrote, turn turnkey solutions to thorny problems are a fallacy, which I love. Our listeners are used to coming to these episodes and not coming away with, here is the thing that we should mm-hmm. do. But yeah. but you do have some suggestions around what it might look like to make progress on this, to create more safe school environments. One of the things that I really appreciate about it is this idea of centering the voices most likely to be negatively impacted, right? So So one of the things I think about is as a white dad with white kids, most of the systems in our society are set up to support me and my kids. Mm-hmm. And and it's easy to have a lot of faith that they are going to work the way they are designed for my kids. I have little question that my kids are going to be, you know, disproportionately – criminalized because of a metal detector at their school, that if they accidentally had something in their bag, they'd be given the benefit of the doubt that kind of the system is going to, you know, have the flexibility that it should have on behalf of my kids in a way that is not true for other kids. And so I think this idea of like, whose voices do we center when we are when we're asking these questions? So you said, you know, like the the community voice that has said, we don't want police in schools, we need to listen to. And then we need to also say, okay, well, so what what goes in its place. So, you know, sort of thinking about, about mm-hmm. next steps and particularly next steps that parents can take as our audience is largely parents and caregivers. Like, what, what does it look like to advocate for more safe school environments?
2: I think student voice and community voice are critical, right? What would it look like, Val, to talk to the students in your son's school and say, this metal detector here, like, mm-hmm. do you want this? Mm-hmm. How does this make you feel? And, and there may be some group of students who are like, you know... It actually makes me feel better because I know that nobody else here has got anything on them, Mm -hmm. right? In the schools that I spent time in, the kids would walk through that metal detector having had to dump out their water bottles, right? And what they said to me was, this is worse than the airport. This is not a school. This is a jail, right? Mm -hmm. It was not lost on them, the message Mm-hmm. that was being said right and and for them to have the opportunity to say that to someone <clears throat> with decision making power i think is imperative right mm. so i think extending that to parents right if if you are a parent who wants to act as an advocate or or ensure that your student can act as an advocate i think showing up in the spaces where decisions are being made is an important first step, right? The the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting just last week, there was a huge community showing about, listen, this is a district that says it's promoting restorative justice, but you've got a three person staff for a district mm-hmm. of 125 schools specializing in restorative oh justice God. and your public safety office has more than 70 employees and they're all cops so like what does that say and 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 then the media picked that up and then those are stories that are that are now getting traction at the level of the superintendent but at the end of the day so much of this has to do with resources dollars, mm-hmm. people, time, knowledge and and so what can you as a parent do to make sure that the money is going where you think mm-hmm. it should go to promote the kind of safety that you hope your kid experiences in school? Number one, number two, I, I think advocating for the kinds of systems and structures that ensure a wider diversity of voices, obviously racially ethnically socioeconomically but but also in terms of youth and adults mm. establishing like real student governance structures inside school districts i think is important with real power right like mm-hmm. ensuring that those folks have actual power and are not just doing lip service and and providing an opportunity for for districts to give themselves a pat on the back for on the face of it including youth voice in in their decision making mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then I think to to come back to my researcher identity, I think getting some real traction with what we call rapid cycle evaluation or continuous improvement, right? Like what would it take to put in like plan, do, study, act cycles into schools, into districts? We're going to try this thing. We're going to try hiring an additional three school counselors instead of our school safety officers, right? Instead of our SROs. Let's think about, like, what are the metrics we would expect to move? What would be the indicators that this is working? And let's track on those things for three months, for six months, and come back together and and assess whether this intervention is doing what we're hoping for it to do. And if not, like, what is it we need to tweak or change so that we have a better hope of achieving our desired outcome in terms of safety? And that I think requires taking even one more step back and like doing the visioning of as a community, what does school safety even look like to us, and how will we know when we 're there?
0: mhm. This has been great. I'm so grateful for all of your work for coming on and spending the time and Sharing and giving us such a a deeper understanding, I think just like a much broader way to think about safety that feels really powerful. It
2: was such a pleasure. I think it's a really important conversation and it's nuanced and it's messy. And I'm I'm really happy to be in it with y'all. And hopefully this will be of of some use to someone. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So no Val, what did you think?
1: Yeah, I I really appreciate Dr. Meg's bringing so much nuance to this conversation. You know, as a parent, and I talks about like metal detectors at my kid's school. And while I, I hate that that happens, there is some sense of security you feel and knowing that at least through that door, there aren't any weapons. And at the same time, it feels like, what are we doing wrong? <laughs> that that mm-hmm. has to be part of, what helps us feel safe and acknowledging that for some students and for some parents, that might be exactly what they need in order to feel comfortable with their young people at a school site. So I, I appreciate the nuance and I appreciate her deep curiosity for asking these questions in the first place and what messages we're sending to our young people about it. Like with every conversation, when we talk about what parents want, I can guarantee that there's no parent who doesn't want their kids safe at school Right.
0: right. I appreciate yeah the nuance, right? She 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 has that quote turnkey solutions to thorny problems are a fallacy. Mm-hmm. I think so often we're like, well what's the what's the answer to school safety? Mm-hmm. What's the thing that we are going to do? Is it more metal detectors? Is no. it more cops? Is it, no. you know, arming teachers? No. And it's none of those things. And if there is any turnkey solution, it is like we have to do the work on the ground with the community who is the most impacted and say what does it mean to be safe? What does it mean to feel safe? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to to create an environment that makes you feel like you are safe and can you know engage in this project of democracy building engage in this project of Education as a, as a great equalizer. You know, I think one of the themes that she sort of touched on that, that I've been knocking around since the conversation is this like link between freedom and safety that mm-hmm. you know, she felt safe enough in her school mm-hmm. environment growing up to explore her, her identity, to figure out who she was. There was like a degree of safety that was required mm-hmm. for her to feel free enough to do that. And so what does it look like to create schools that are actually Incubating freedom? What does it look Ooh. like to create schools that are actually places where we are creating safety that allows kids to be free?
1: Mm. You dropped the mic on that one. <laughs> I was really touched by her talking about experiencing freedom in school and really wanting that for all young people. And so I wonder what conversations adults have to have to come to common ground about what freedom looks like for every child. Mm. And you know, most times I'm pretty hopeful. I'm a hopeful person.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: For whatever reason, that that conversation feels challenging to me, and I'm not quite sure why.
0: The conversation about creating schools that are incubators of freedom?
1: About us coming to come in understanding about what that looks like for mm. for our young people. I think that feels difficult because I think this is where Parents can make the argument, well, it's my values as a parent. You know, it feels like that one feels personal because, again, every parent wants their child safe.
0: And every parent has very different both tolerance for risk and priorities around which pieces of safety feel the most relevant or the most important. It's one of the terrifying things about being a parent is that you cannot create absolute safety for your kids. And you probably don't want to create absolute safety. You know, they need to have some risk in their lives. They need to take some chances. They need to make some mistakes. And you're sort of constantly weighing out the like, is this a risk I'm willing to take? Is this a place where I'm willing to give them a little bit more space, a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more freedom? And that is something that we don't do collectively that is a super individual choice. Yeah. And so then we have these institutions that are that are tasked with, you know, kind of creating, I think what we often end up doing is they end up kind of catering to the lowest common denominator, which ends up being the least amount of freedom, hmm. the least amount of flexibility, the least amount of hmm. space to explore and grow. Because otherwise, somebody's going to be mad about it because it doesn't match theirs. But I, you know, Mm -hmm. the 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 hopeful version of of me, and I I share I share some of your skepticism and lack of hope around it because it it does feel (laughs) like a daunting task. But I but I think the more hopeful version of it, in in my mind, is like this is a again we we look at schools as a place to practice democracy, right? Like these are questions that we have to grapple with as a country as well. Is like how how much flexibility, how much freedom, how much space. Do we give people part of the bargain of participating in our country is that we are giving up some freedom and and there's lots of tension around which freedoms are we giving up? How much are we giving up? And and schools provide a place to potentially I don't know that any school is doing it well, but at least there's the potential to try to sort some of those things out to try to figure out how how do we come together and decide, you know, what are what are the non-negotiables and what are the places where we're going to allow some flexibility and some freedom?
1: I think I'm feeling sad because I think, you know, you and I are still having the conversation around physical safety, mm. and we know that it's more than than one dimension. And I can't imagine the energy that many people are willing to put into conversations around physical safety than putting that same energy around emotional safety, curricular safety, queer identity safety, mm-hmm. and that's sad. That that. That is sad because, you know, when I hear you say we go with the lowest common denominator, least amount of freedom, those types of instances can really be, in the words of Bettina Love, spirit murdering or actually right. lead a, a, a child to cause harm to themselves because they aren't in a space that's safe for their identity or for their spirits, right? And yeah, I think I think what I was like struggling with to try to name is, yeah, we'll, we'll, we can sit down and talk about whether or not we want metal detectors, that part feels easy. But there are some folks who don't want to talk about Black history. They don't want to acknowledge right. queer parents. They, you know, like real harm. And and I think that's that's the conversation that feels really hard. So I think just broadening this idea of safety is is really important in the conversation because like you said at the opening... It's far more likely that these other types of harm are being caused in school than right. mass shootings, et cetera. And yet, I saw something recently. There's a, a company who's like creating a movable wall that, like, it's a like a hideaway wall where you close it and right. it's bulletproof. And right, what are we doing? Kevlar
0: reinforced backpacks. What
1: are we kids? doing? Right. What are we doing? Right. right. When once a kid gets into that school, you know, we we haven't thought about the The beauty and the freedom that Dr. Meg talked about that she experienced is being able to be her full self. Right. Right. So when we talk about creating spaces of freedom, right. it's not just about how freely kids walk in the hallways or go to lunch or don't have to line up. There's so much more involved in that. And it's not fair that only a subset of kids get to experience that.
0: Right. And I appreciate that. Dr. Meg kept coming back as well to like the power of whiteness in her own life, you mm-hmm. know, like the, the role that whiteness played in creating that safe space. Mm-hmm. It was not the only factor, but was certainly a factor in creating that space for her to explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you think about how much time and energy and for a company to design a hideaway wall that's bulletproof. What are we doing? That's like an immense amount of intellectual labor, of physical doing? labor. What are we doing? But, but it, you know, it's a response to this very real, palpable fear that. You know, you see on the news what mm-hmm. happens in in a school and you say, I, I could not live with that. Mm-hmm. We have to do something. It is extreme. We have to do something. But like, how do we create a society that views the far more often harm of a trans kid not being able to be themselves, mm-hmm. of a black kid not seeing themselves in their curriculum, mm-hmm. of a Latinx kid not learning any Latinx history in school. Like, how do we look at those dangers and have the same level of outrage and have the same, you know, degree of, of energy and activism to do something about that? Because right. that's actually going to help far more kids than, you know, the one school that happens to get a bulletproof wall that then happens to what are we be the victim in a school shooting.
1: <laughs> right, right. Instead of being honest about that level of safety for all young people, you know, the discourse in our current moment is let's make sure kids with dominant identities are the ones who feel the safest still. Let's make sure we don't talk about race so that young white students don't feel bad.
0: That is taking a broader view of safety, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's taking in the wrong direction. But the argument is my kid is not safe. My white kid is not safe if they are exposed to ideas of racism. My potentially cis kid is not safe if they are exposed to other versions of gender, other versions of sexuality, other versions of love, right? That is a call for m- a broader definition of safety. It's just, yeah. who do we listen to in that? And this is you know one of the other things I just found so compelling about Dr. Meg. And her focus is like, you know she very clearly says, we have to listen to those who are the most impacted. Absolutely. We have to focus... Our research, we have to focus our, you know, attention on those who are the most impacted by the ways we think about safety.
1: Yeah. You know, these last two episodes, you got me in my feels, homie. <laughs> <laughs> my um,
0: Say more about your feels. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, is it just like a kind of hopelessness? Is it a like
1: no, the tragedy
0: no. of how it's, many kids are, are being harmed right in this moment?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is tragic. It's tragic. It's It's something that, we have the power to change. It's causing so much harm to the young folks that we have been chosen to usher in and support. Right. And young people are being used in this moment. Right. And their voices aren't being elevated. And even if they said, here's what I need my school to be, we are ignoring them. And that's 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 tough for yeah. anyone who cares about young people, I imagine and in terms of like what that means for our audience you know and to connect to all of the episodes and everything that we talk about like as a white privileged parent attending a global majority of school don't show up with your your idea of fear and safety and try to impose that on the school because of mm-hmm. your biases around how the world works right like being in real community with folks and understanding what it is that makes them feel safe and if we if we Honestly, work from the standpoint that no parent wants their kids to feel unsafe at school. And we center the voices of those who feel the least safe. Right. Then your kid will be safe.
0: Mm, right.
1: Your kid will be safe. Yeah. It's tragic. It's tragic. It's tragic. Because they're counting on us. Right. To get it right.
0: To get it better. Yeah. To get it less wrong.
1: Get it less wrong. How about that? That's yeah. that's a goal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a goal. That feels attainable. Yeah,
1: less <laughs> wrong. Less wrong. That yeah. does feel attainable. That does feel attainable. Yeah. Sorry, y'all. These are heavy topics.
0: Yeah. I mean it's it speaks to why we have to think of more than one dimension of school safety, right? Why we can't stop at physical safety. And I think why we can't take a like race blind approach to our thoughts about safety, right? Like the mm-hmm. there is a way. And I mean, this in some ways comes back to one of your very first episodes, right? Is like, no amount of my commitment to equity puts my kids at risk in the same way that your kids are at risk.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's a way in which my tolerance for safety interventions is likely to be higher because I have less reason to be concerned about them negatively impacting my mm-hmm. kid. Mm-hmm. But it's much easier for me to, and I don't know, like, I, I don't want my kids to go to school where there's a metal detector, I think. They don't currently i don't I don't know that I would be excited about that, but mm-hmm. my lack of excitement about that would be more about like what does that do to the school culture and much less about like what does that do to my individual kid because the systems are set up to give my kid the benefit of the doubt yeah. you know those things that we are putting in place are designed with my kids in mind, and I think there is this like heightened sense of fear you know caused by media attention on these incredibly rare and incredibly tragic incidents like school shootings so everybody has a baseline level of fear but the reality I think is like as in so many other places my kids are actually in a much safer position it's like that's why I need to show up for safety for a whole child for a more than one dimensional version of safety and I need to kind of shut up and just see like what is what does that mean to the people who are in the school
1: I think another reason why I'm in my fields about this is you know because I've always known that one of the reasons white and or privileged folks won't want to integrate global majority schools is because they'll use the safety argument. And, mm-hmm. you know, anti-Blackness is just hard. <laughs> it's just hard. Yeah. It's just hard, friend. And so I'm glad we're having the conversation because I think people won't be honest about that level of anti-Blackness, right? Mm. And so as difficult as it is to have the conversation, I think it's important for us to name the thing. Let's just stop pretending that you're actually right. worried about safety or let's talk about why you feel unsafe around black and brown people. Right. And And this is me knowing that folks feel unsafe around black and brown people. And that's just hard because I'm a black and brown right. person, <laughs> right? right? So, you know, some days it's easier to like just kind of brush that off and some days it, it puts me in my fields about it but I think it puts me in my fields about it whenever we're talking about children being impacted because again we're talking about right. 5 to 11 year olds in elementary school yeah. and we've already right.
0: decided who's safe and who's not
1: right Yeah. but we're not at all concerned about and this is, I'm obviously generalizing, but we're not at all concerned about like these young people having the spaces where they their identity is af- affirmed and they get right. to be who they are.
0: We have we have quickly decided that black and brown kids are not safe, and we have not decided that the curriculum we're teaching our kids is not Correct. safe. Correct.
1: Yeah, we're doubling down on the curriculum.
0: Yeah, I think I think there are, there are probably some white folks that we're not going to reach with a message of it's time to change how you think about safety. Right. And I think there are a lot of white folks who need a nudge
1: to be safe in schools fully, to be fully safe in your whole identity mm-hmm. is something that we should aim for. That when we say right. your kid is safe at school, it is both from physical violence, emotional violence, bullying, you know, discrimination along any marginalized identity. When we say your kid is safe at school, it means all of that. And those things cannot just be taken care of by going through a metal detector. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah, 100 percent. The other thing that comes to my mind in this conversation is just like once again, we are asking schools to solve society wide problems. Mm -hmm. And there is certainly no amount of, you know, quote unquote, fortifying of schools that is going to meaningfully address the problem of there being way too many guns in this country.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Like that is a society wide problem that we have to as a society decide we are going to do something about because we can't continue to ask schools to try to fix that problem.
1: No, no. It's not fair to our young people. It's not fair to our educators. Yeah.
0: The idea is not let's take the threat of school shootings less seriously. Mm -mm. The idea is let's add to the list of serious things that we're concerned about these other dimensions of school safety.
1: Absolutely. And let's make sure in advocating for our our own young people's safety that we have expanded our definition so that every kid feels safe in that school. Because every kid deserves that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Val. End of the episode. I know you're in your feels, but... Action steps.
1: You know, as as difficult as these conversations are, sometimes I I am thankful to engage in them with you, sir. Uh, I really am, me too. because you have provided me a safe space to be my whole self and I don't take that for granted so thank you very much
0: thank you. for
1: doing that one action step that I think is important and I think we started here today is expanding our ideas of school safety so for sure. you know we're about to have dinner now I can go talk to my kids about like what is it what does school safety mean to you and I'm thinking that's even something that as a parent at a global-majority school if a white parent said hey does your kid feel safe at school I would feel okay engaging in that conversation and being able to explain the more than one-dimensional way in which my kid may not feel safe at school. So, right. for this episode in particular, I think an action step of talking about it is really significant. That feels yeah. really important. How about you?
0: You know, I, I sort of see see it like a, a sort of twofold action steps one one is for white and privileged parents not to opt out of a school because of the excuse of safety mm-hmm. to like recognize that all schools have the potential to cause harm and all schools have the potential to be places where kids can find safety and freedom to, to be themselves. And I think the ways that we typically think about what makes a safe school are not great ways to judge whether mm. a school is actually fulfilling that mission or not. You know, mm-hmm. So don't use it as an excuse to opt out of a school. And then when you do show up in that school, you know, make sure that you're showing up for whole kid safety. Make sure that you're engaging in those conversations. Hey, does your kid feel safe here? Here are yeah. some ways that my kid might not feel safe here. How does your kid not feel safe here? Making sure that we're like privileging the voices of those who are most impacted And then, yeah, I mean, like we talked about in the last episode, eventually, once you have shown (laughs) up, once you have listened, once you have stayed put, then like speaking up and advocating like, hey, I feel like the, you know, the reading assignment is not super safe. Right. Hey, I feel like the bathroom policy is not super safe. Hey, I feel like the discipline that's being given out is not super safe because particularly the we talked about this about a bit last time as well but the expectations that schools have for white parents if i come in to talk to the principal about and i'm concerned about safety oh you're like, getting a meeting alarm bells are going you off, are right? getting a meeting and so and so a <laughs> school is going to by nature privilege my kid's safety anyway mm-hmm. how do i how do i make sure that i'm showing up and advocating for safety for all kids yeah i appreciate you i appreciate you mm-hmm. i'm sorry we got you in your feels
1: well, i mean it's good to feel yeah and it's good to be in a place where you know we can talk about it and and not feel alone. So I'm hoping that listeners out there who are kind of grappling with these same fields don't feel alone
0: and if you don't feel alone, Send us a voicemail
1: about it. Oh, please. We'd love to hear your feedback. Go
0: to the website, integratedschools.org. Click on the send us a voicemail button on the side or just record a voicemail on your phone and email it to us, podcast at integratedschools.org. You can also support our work by joining our Patreon, patreon.com slash integratedschools. Throw us a few bucks every month. Help keep this enterprise going. We would be very grateful.
1: Listen, share the podcast, listen again, talk about it, read the transcripts, do the study questions. <laughs> um, we really <laughs> want you to engage. This is not a one sided conversation, so please take part.
0: Absolutely. Val, as always, it is a true honor and privilege to be in these sometimes hard and always thought provoking conversations with you as I try to know better and do better.
1: Until next time.